We left off in Jeremiah 9 last time, so I want to go back there. <clears throat> Chapter 8, by way of review, asked the question at the end, Isn't God in Zion? Then why haven't we been delivered? The harvest is past, the summer's ended, and we aren't saved. Uh, where is a bomb in Gilead? Where is our position, Jesus Christ? Why has he not delivered us? And then Jeremiah laments because of the circumstances that were in Israel in that day, and which certainly are true today. But he wished he could just fly away, get away from it all, because the people are sinful, this nation is sinful, the church is sinful, and I think that this mirrors a feeling that sometimes we have. It's just so hard to keep fighting, so hard to keep going, so hard to change, to grow, to overcome, and we keep getting pressured to do that. I heard that I was castigated recently, and I guess all of us together were in that sense, that our whole focus is prophecy, and that that's wrong to be. Well, in a way, I think it's true our focus is prophecy, but when they say your focus is prophecy, I think in their minds when they say that, you're concerned about dates and events and exactly how they will transpire. But if you've noticed, most of Jeremiah so far has been essentially nothing but Christian conduct. God is concerned prophetically about the conduct of his people here in the end time, just like he was back then. And he had it written down for us. So, you can say our focus is on prophecy, but I think if we're honest about it, and maybe we're even tired of it for that matter, when I speak about prophecy, it's generally about Christian conduct, because that's what God is concerned and upset about. And that is the theme that continues and continues and continues through all the prophecies, and in fact all the Bible, because the Bible is entirely prophetic. It's prophetic about how things will be at the end, just like they've been in the past, and what will be done, and who will repent, and who will be delivered of God. So Jeremiah has an awful lot of dire things to say, but isn't the object that we be saved out of this? That's the whole purpose. And God has made it very clear that those whom he accounts worthy will be those who grow and overcome. He says that to all the churches. Those who claim to be and want to be and desire to be Philadelphian seem to overlook that. And yet it says of Philadelphia, you too must overcome which means Philadelphia, too, must have problems to be overcome. So it doesn't matter what part of the church we think we are, overcoming is the key issue at the end of all the churches and all the people. And Jeremiah lamented that there's not much available in terms of being valiant for the truth. 
the beginning of chapter 9. But we tend to be spiritually treacherous. We tend to deceive ourselves. And isn't that what Revelation 3 and Laodiceanism is all about? Deceiving ourselves as to our true spiritual condition. So all these prophecies were written that we might focus on stripping away the deception, coming to see ourselves honestly as we really are, and then do something about it. That's what God wishes us to do. And that's what prophecy really is all about. So prophecy is Christian living, or unchristian living that God wants turned into Christian living. That's what we're here for, is to get rid of the non-Christian part of ourselves and be the way God wants us to be. Chapter 9, verse 3, They are not valiant for the truth upon the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, says the Eternal. Take you heed, every one of his neighbor, and trust not in any brother. We have to be very careful, because deception and lying is so rampant. For every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slander, gossip, and lies. Isn't this what Christ said in the Olivet Prophecy? That the love of many would wax cold because of iniquity, because of sin, and that brother would betray brother. Christ was only repeating what is written in Jeremiah 9 when he gave that Sermon on the Mount in that particular area. They will deceive everyone his neighbor and will not speak the truth. There is a great deal of deception going on in the greater church of God today. We are accused of being deceivers, or I am, um, by many, not just a few. Is it any great deception to tell you you need to be like God? Is it any deception to read these scriptures and apply them to ourselves and say, let's be like God instead of like the world? Where's the deception in that? But that is primarily our message, isn't it? I know it gets tiresome in some respects. I know we don't like to be prodded and prodded and prodded. But everywhere you go in the Bible, that's what God does. There's no getting away from it. Old Testament, New Testament, any part of anywhere you go in the Bible, you will be prodded to change your conduct. If that gets old, perhaps we have an attitude that we need to change. Because the overall goal of life and of Christianity is to be like God. And we are all short of that. So the, the goal and the purpose is here, and we're back here somewhere. Now, if the goal is there, don't you prod yourself constantly toward the goal? Isn't that what God, if he were our football or baseball or basketball coach, would be doing? 
we want to win the championship. We heard about it in the sermonette, about the racehorse and about Paul's analogies of running a race. Your track coach, anyone who is trying to get you to win something, to gain something, prods, pushes, pulls, inspires, strengthens, does anything within his power as a coach and his background and understanding and capability and whatever he has that makes him be a coach pushes that athlete or businessman or whatever it is toward the goal. And it's constant. You find it in employment. Did you ever have a boss of any successful company who was not continually prodding, pushing, leading, guiding, trying to get you to be more efficient and more effective and be a better run business so that the profit would be there? That's what it's all about in any human endeavor. And how much the more when it comes to spiritual endeavor where the goals and purposes are eternal and we'll be given everything that God ever promises in his word if we move forward. God is a master at using both the carrot and the stick. He holds the carrot in front of us at all times. And if you notice scripture, it'll jump on you and jump on you, and then it'll give you a little relief and hope, and then it'll jump on you some more, and then it'll give you a little relief and hope. So God holds the carrot with one hand and smacks you with the other one. That's the way he goes about throughout Scripture. And he is the master. He will accomplish his purposes. He will have a kingdom full of spirit beings who have changed themselves to the point he is willing to make the final and major changes that have to occur. And we have to be very careful in this end time because people will lie and deceive and they'll tell you things that won't get you toward that goal righteousness and holiness and getting rid of the unclean and becoming clean is what it's all about and if you are not being told to do those things then something is amiss That is one of the big objections God has. Even in the book of Haggai, where he says he will draw the faithful remnant together, he, he says that the priests will not distinguish between the clean and the unclean. They allow the unclean to continue. So, I am duty-bound to extinguish, or distinguish between those two. Extinguish, yes, the unclean, but distinguish between what is clean and what is unclean. If not, I will fall in great disfavor with God. So, I don't know what to say other than we're going to get more and more of the same. <laughs> I don't see any way to get away from it. What part of the Bible are you going to go to that gives you a free ride? We'll turn to a few little verses that talk about grace in the New Testament jerk them out of context and say we don't have to do anything, we're just simply under grace. We don't have to grow, we don't have to overcome. And yet the whole rest of the Bible is about growing and overcoming, 
And even in those areas where it talks about grace, it lays conditions under which God will give that grace. Never does it pay you get a free ride. Never anywhere. Not if you leave everything in context the way it belongs. They will deceive everyone his neighbor, verse 5, and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. It just goes on and on, and no change occurs. What that tells me is God expects change. It's one thing to recognize our lacks. It's another thing to stay there and not overcome them. We have to be brutally honest. We have to recognize where we're deceiving ourselves. But God expects us to do something about it. That's what overcoming is. So, honesty is the first key. The second, then, is once we've been honest with ourselves to make the changes that need to be made. But just coming to be honest with ourselves is sometimes very, very difficult. We like to gloss over our lacks and our faults and not really address them. Verse 6, your habitation is in the midst of deceit. We're living in a very complicated, deceived society, and we have a great deal of deception within the church as well. How do you determine, how do you plumb the depths of the political situation in this country and know what people's motivations really are. You know, you, you see what the talking heads on television news tell you, and then you read the truth in the Internet about what people's motivations and goals really are. And who knows how much of what you read is true or here, either over the TV news or on the Internet. What's made up and what is not made up. We know from God's word that there is great deception and that there are people with agendas that are against us, both in the nation and in the church. Now, are those church leaders deceiving people on purpose? I doubt it. I think even those who are plotting against us and the demise of our country and the removal of its sovereignty and its borders think that that is the best thing for this country. They don't think they are undermining and destroying us. They think that what they are planning will actually be good for us, i.e. that 90% of us die and that the earth have a sustainable population etc., etc. They think that that would be better for mankind. Just as in the church, people think it's, who speak, think it's better for the church to tell them that everything is okay with us. And that is a great deception because that is not what the Bible says. What is God going to do as a result of these conditions? Verse 7. Therefore, thus says the eternal of hosts. When he says eternal of hosts, he's saying, I have the power 
I am the eternal of all hosts. I rule everything and everyone. It is a declaration of power when he uses that term. He uses it a lot in Haggai. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will melt them and try them. Again, using uh, like metals, melting them to get rid of the dross and the impurities so that they're pure silver, pure gold. God is going to melt with that in mind. And try them. Sometimes it seems like our lives are difficult. No, it isn't the world, in some respects, that has the most difficulty. It's us. And that is with a purpose in mind. Sometimes it's easy for us to get down. And man, I have so many trials and troubles and difficulties. And things sometimes don't seem to go the right way. Well, God told us that would happen. That's, if you please, prophecy or just plain Christian living. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And through much tribulation enter the kingdom. Now, if God melts something, there is a great deal of heat applied. He is currently melting the church. There's a great deal of heat being applied. Are you and I excused from that? I don't think so. We need tried and melted so that we get rid of our tendency to deceive ourselves and others. So that we're honest. So that the impurities can be melted out. How many times did David lament how the wicked seemed to prosper and the righteous had trouble? It's all through the Psalms, especially through the middle sections, which equate prophetically to where we are today in the church, just before God's blessing comes. If you go through the Psalms all the way, the story we saw in the Minor Prophets, and we're seeing in these prophecies, the story is laid out in exactly the same way from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150. Maybe I'll take time at some point to go through that. I've intended to, but that's 150 chapters. I don't know how long that would take. But during those chapters that equate prophetically to where we are right now, that's what David was, was lamenting. You know, why is the pressure on us? Well, we're the ones that are candidates to be God's jewels in his kingdom. And jewels are made with heat and pressure. So, let's not forget that. You know, it's easy to get down and say, boy, things just aren't going the way I want them to go. Well, that's, what, that's the way God told us it would be. Especially during this time. There will come a time, Isaiah 54, when we will, people will be offered... Wine without money and milk without money and blessing unparalleled and never before like it in this age, in the latter temple. Very clear when you understand the story. But until that time, the pressure is on. 
What is God doing? Is he just trying? Is he doing this just just because he can? No, he's doing it because there is a desired response. He wants us to become jewels worthy of his crown, worthy of his son. I'll melt them and try them. Or how shall I do for the daughter of my people? Put in more modern English, I think that would say, what else can I do? They're stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they're rebellious. They were born in Babylon, they grew up in Babylon, they don't want to turn loose of Babylon. What else can I do but put them through trouble? Would blessing us help us? Let's be logical here. We look too much like the world. We don't look enough like God. So if he pours his blessing out on us, what does that do to us? It makes us more self-satisfied. It makes us more self-righteous. It must it makes us think, well, God's blessing us. We must be doing something right. I've heard that expression in this end-time church. We got a blessing. We must be doing something right. And that leads you to quit purging your life of things that need purged. For God, his, we, we have tied his hands in that sense. While he would love to bless, what did Christ say? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that stone the prophets, how many times have I clucked to you like a mother hen to her chickens, or to her chicks? How many times? And yet Israel's response is always essentially the same, and there are only a few who are willing. If we get tired of what the prophets say, and there are a lot of them in this book, whether they're called prophets or not, Jesus Christ is a prophet. If we get tired of that, are we not doing what ancient Israel did when they picked up literal stones and stoned the prophets? If we get tired of the words that the prophets are reading to us in this book, then we are spiritually stoning the prophets. Now, most people do not want to hear what these prophets have to say. But God will do nothing except he warns through his servants the prophets, Amos 3. And isn't there an awful lot of warning here? We saw a lot in Isaiah. We see even more in Jeremiah. And why do you hear he's Egypt? And for that matter, Daniel. So what, what else can I do, God says? It's going to take the end time, three and a half year tribulation, to wake a lot of people up. And Zechariah says that many will wake up at that time. But that is the kind of pressure it's going to take. This mental, emotional, spiritual pressure is not enough to wake most of the church up. We think this is tough. We go into that tribulation, then we're going to learn about tough, physically and spiritually, at the same time. We don't want to go there. That's why these warning 
messages are here so that we might have opportunity to escape what is about to happen. What do I do with my people? Verse 8, their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. We have barbed tongues that hurt and penetrate within each other. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in heart he lays in wait. No, we sometimes don't say what we're really thinking. We say something that we think is socially acceptable, but what we're really thinking remains unsaid. And we lie in wait to ambush them and put a dart maybe in their back. Is there a lot of that in the greater church of God and in this little organization as well? What's God to do? Shall I not visit them for these things, says the Eternal? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a people as this? Shall I just let them go on this way, or shall I do something about it? See, at this point, we still have a fork in the road. We can choose to be honest and forthright and break the tips off our barbed tongues, or we can continue on and go into the tribulation. It's really up to us. God will not be mocked. He is a jealous God. And the pressure will stay on. If we respond properly to the pressure, we'll be fine. Verse 10, For the mountains will I take up a weeping and wailing, and for the habitations of the wilderness a lamentation, because they are burned up, so that none can pass through them, neither can men hear the voice of the cattle, both the fowl of the heavens and the beast are fled, they are gone. Terrible times, famine, destruction in the land. And I will make Jerusalem heaps, or just piles of wreckage. Did you see the footage recently of the tornadoes that went through Indiana and Ohio, I think, or no, Kentucky, I guess it was, in Indiana. And the ground just littered with heaps and piles of rubble that had been houses minutes before. That's the way the church and the nation are going to look. Just like that tornado. I will make Jerusalem piles or heaps in a den of dragons. Something for snakes to crawl through. Not habitable by men. And I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Die of famine and pestilence or the sword are going to a captivity and be carried away so that the land is left desolate. That's the way it's going to be. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the eternal is spoken that he may declare it? For that the land perishes and is burned up like wilderness that none passes through. How many understand that? You can talk to people in the world. I was talking to a man yesterday who was pouring concrete for one of our men over here. And uh, we were discussing the condition of the nation and 
Those people just out in the world can see that there are things terribly wrong. But who understands why? Who understands what's happening to the church and to the world? Very few. There's not much understanding. There's perplexity because and frustration because of what people see, but they don't know why it's there. They don't know what to do about it. They don't have a clue. God gives us some clues as to what to do about it. And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked therein, but have walked after their imagination of their own heart, and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them, this religion, that religion, this God, that God, idols of our own imagination. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood, and give them water of gall to drink. Did you ever break a gallbladder and have it get on a liver that you ate? Chicken, turkey, goat, cow, whatever. You get that fluid out of the gallbladder on that liver and then you eat it. It is so bitter it just will wreck your face. That's what God is going to give us in our society. Why is it we have so much trouble giving up this society and its thrills and thrills? You would think we could read this and say, man, I don't want anything to do with it. Because that's what God is talking about here. But we cling to different aspects of it. Different ones of us with different aspects of it. Well, if we insist, God will do something about it. I will scatter them also among the heathen, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. See, this nation, this people today, have been the land of the free and the home of the brave for hundreds of years now. We've not feared on our own soil until more recently when we've had some terrorist attacks. Small still in many respects in terms of over 300 million people and the damage that has been done. Perhaps there's damage to our psyche. Perhaps there's a little damage to our uh, secure, secure feeling, but nothing like is happening in other places right now. You're in certain parts of the world. You don't know whether to go to a subway station or a hotel or whatever. You don't know when someone's going to blow it up. Scary. Will happen here. God's going to give us wormwood and gall and scatter us among the heathen that we haven't known. We've not had the heathen Gentile nations inhabiting our country and making us do as they please. We've not known that, but we're going to know it. Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, Consider you and call for the mourning women that they may come, and send for cunning women that they may come, and let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids gush out with waters. Well, women are characteristic of 
churches spiritually. It says, call the churches. Tell them to weep and wail for us for about what is about to happen. And also, the women are caretakers of emotion in a family. Call for the women to cry for our people. Because this is going to come. You might as well get the criers and the wailers out now ahead of time. Let them shed the tears now because this thing is coming as surely as day follows night. Men aren't known to cry a lot. Women cry and weep easier than men, and part of it is our own male ego and part of the training and background we have. The women are tenderer. So God says, call the women, let them cry, because men are not leading this nation or this church where it ought to go. Women are oppressors and children rule over us. Men. For a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. How are we spoiled? How bad it is. We are greatly confounded because we have forsaken the land because our dwellings have cast us out. Our whole system is one to turn us out. Our dwellings, I think, is an interesting way of putting that because what is one of the biggest things right now that is going to cause the financial crash and destruction of America and its wealth? We have spent so much money on dwellings. We have raised the prices artificially on land and houses. And when those who hold the mortgages call the notes, our houses and our lands are one of the big keys to our destruction. And according to reports I'm reading in different news media, that is on the verge of happening. Yet hear the word of the Eternal, O you women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth, and teach your daughters wailing, and every one of her, and every one her neighbor, lamentation. What the churches, the women, ought to be teaching right now is that wailing and lamentation is about to come. Prepare yourselves for what is about to come. Listen to God's words. Those are the words we are considering today. Maybe it sounds bad to talk about these things and we don't want to hear about it. We don't want it to come. We can't believe it could happen to us. We can't believe it could happen to this nation. And most Americans are in denial of that, even though they realize that there are over six billion people on the earth basically that hate us and would like to have everything we have and will do everything they can to take it away from us, we still put our head down and won't look up at what is really going on and we just say, let me make it through my life. There's nothing we can do about it. Just don't let it happen till I die. Or someone expressed it yesterday who's in the world. I'm sure glad I'm living now. I'd hate to be around when my grandchildren are adult. And I told him, they won't be around. And he admitted it's probably true. 
the handwriting is on the wall, people just try to go on. They don't want their lives disturbed. Brethren, we have to have our lives disturbed. God says, listen to his words, and teach your daughters wailing, and everyone her neighbor lamentation. For death has come up to our windows, and has entered into our palaces to cut off the children from without and the young men from the streets. Children will not be able to play outdoors, and young men who walk out on the street will be killed. You know, young men think they're invincible. They think they're immortal. They don't think anything could hurt them. But that's the ones God says will be killed. They go out on the street. Not going to be safe there. Speak! Thus says the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field, and as the handful after the harvest man, and none shall gather them. Decimated, just like dung falling from behind a horse or a cow in the street. That's how much work there will be left in the dead bodies that fall, just like manure on the ground. And only a handful left, and none shall gather them. You know, God said, leave the corners of the field, don't harvest it all, because there's always a little bit left. That's the analogy he uses here. The people in our land, and in the church, remember it's always spiritual and physical, there won't be much left. Thus says the Eternal, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, our super-egos about how much we understand or know won't mean anything. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might or strength. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Those things are not going to do us any good. The riches will turn to manure. But let him that glories glory in this. There's only one thing to glory in. Youth, strength, wealth, beauty, none of those things will make any difference. But him that glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Eternal. He doesn't delight in our deception, be it self-deception or deception of neighbor. He doesn't delight in human carnality. He doesn't delight in broken law, but he really does delight in loving kindness, proper judgment, and righteousness in the earth. If you want something God delights in, those are the things. I want God to delight in you and me. So here's the formula. Be filled with loving kindness one to another. Didn't Christ say, love one another as yourself? Yeah, this is all about Christianity. That's all this is about. Our focus is on true Christianity. Be lovingly tender with one another and judge righteous judgment. Don't make judgments against people negatively. And righteousness. Doing that which is right and proper according to God's standard. Those are the things he delights in. So if you want God to delight in you, the formula is simple. The application is difficult. 
Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Won't make any difference whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. God says he's going to blow it all away. Israelite, Gentile, doesn't matter. It's coming down on the whole world. Egypt and Judah and Edom, well, he lumps Egypt and Judah together. He lumps most of the church, which is spiritual Judah, with the world around it because the church is not willing to come out of Egypt and Babylon. We look too much like them. So we're lumped together. Egypt and Judah, Edom, Esau, the children of Ammon and Moab, and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness. For all these peoples are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. In other words, it doesn't do any good to be a physical Israelite. It's circumcision of the heart that matters, the mind, the attitude. The little flap of carnality in our hearts and minds that has to be removed. That's what really counts. What did the Pharisees say? We have Abraham to our father. We're circumcised. Did that make any difference to Christ? No. He condemned them soundly. It didn't make any difference that they were blood relatives of Abraham. They weren't circumcised in the heart. The message to them and to us is the same today and it is in this end-time prophecy of Jeremiah. Chapter 10, Hear you the word which the Eternal speaks to you, O house of Israel. Hear the words. Listen, don't stone these prophets. Thus says the Eternal, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them. They worry about their horoscope. They worry about what's going on in the heavens. They worry about what impact it will have on their lives. They are concerned, in that sense, with demonism. Now, we read Jeremiah 10 years ago, and it was quoted in the little booklet on the plain truth about Christmas, and we were coming out of the world, and we were getting rid of Christmas. And at that point, I don't think it entered our minds that this was a prophetic thing that would happen to the church down the road. We were coming into God's truth and we were learning that Jeremiah 10 was about pagan, heathen practice that we needed to get away from. Never did we dream that the church would go back to what we came out of. We turned to our vomit as a dog or a sow to her wallow as the pig, as the New Testament tells us. But let's read it. Here suddenly it's prophetic, isn't it? Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of the heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cuts a tree out of the forest, the works of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. Perfect description of the Christmas tree. And yet the church today, many, many people in it, are going right back to the Christmas tree. Church of God, 
or worldwide, no longer exists. It is not the Church of God anymore. It is pagan, Protestant, evangelicalism. And they've gone right back to Christmas and Easter, Sunday worship, and all those things, and Satan worship. Let's all get together in a prayer wheel. And the demons took over. I think sometimes when we hold hands around the kitchen or the dining room table, we are inviting something that should not be. The prayer wheel came from paganism. We need to be careful of that one. Sometimes my wife and I will get on our knees and pray and we'll hold hands as we do so. But that's different than a prayer wheel. I have seen with my own eyes what happens with prayer wheels. I cite an example in West Virginia when I was still in Charlotte. The people who had begun to jump up and down evangelically and sing and do it in that Protestant way. And they got in circles and held hands and prayed. And the demons got into that group, and there were people running down the street screaming, scared half to death. I was in Worldwide about six, seven years ago. And it was the prayer circle where it happened. Scary business. They were upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be carried, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also it is in them to do good. Christmas tree can't really hurt you, but it's vain. What good can it do you? Can't solve your problems? Can't bring you peace and happiness? Worst day of the year for violence in our land? More drunkenness and murders on Christmas than any other day. For as much as there is none like unto you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. We take those times which are most sacred to Protestants and Catholics, Christmas. And God says, don't even begin to compare that to me or tie that to me. But I'm not like that. It's not what I want. He makes a comparison between the Christmas tree and God here. Who would not fear you, O king of nations? For to you does it pertain. For as much as among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They can keep their little Jesus Christmas, and it means nothing. Wrong Jesus in the first place. God isn't in it. We shouldn't be either. But they are altogether brutish and foolish. The stock is a doctrine of vanities. Silver spread in the plates is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Euphaz, the work of the workmen, and of the hands of the founder, blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of cunning men. We can import fine things from other places, but it's all in vain, because it doesn't have anything to do with a real God. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, and an everlasting King. At His wrath the earth shall tremble. And the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. This thing is coming. 
And they can have their Christmas, they can have their Christmas trees, but I will not save them from God. Might be happiness, peace, and joy in their minds. They have all these wonderful songs about peace, happiness, and joy at Christmas time. God says it won't do a bit of good. It's coming down, and he's going to do it. Verse 11, Thus shall you say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. It doesn't make any difference what man has done, what god he worships, what idol he has, what's important to him. It's all coming down. You cling to it, you'll go down with it. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. Kind of the same message that God gave to Job, isn't it? Don't be self-righteous. Don't think that we've created anything worthwhile here on this earth. God made the heavens and the earth. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings with rain and brings forth the wind out of his treasures. Fear him. There was some thunder and lightning that struck very close to my house during the feast when I was in bed with a cold. And it hit very close. I didn't know how close until I learned that it had knocked out the antenna to our internet on David's house. Pretty close. You know, that, that just gives you chills all through your body when you hear it hit that close and know there was an awful lot of power extended very close to where you were. And God's power is going to be extended real close to where we live, this earth, all over this earth. He made the whole thing. Every man is brutish in his knowledge. We're clods. We're not sophisticated, in other words. We're not very knowledgeable about the things of God. Every founder is confounded by the graven image, for his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. It doesn't matter how wonderful they think they are and whatever they can do to craft something on this earth that they think will last or that is worthwhile, it's all going away. They brag about their financial institutions. They brag about their car manufacturing and their factories. They brag about how wonderful their movies are, and they have awards at the end of the year about how wonderful we were and who was the most wonderful among us. And they get this little idol that they worship because they made the best Babylonian movie of the year. And they praise one another, and they come out half naked to do it. Is that going to last? There's no breath in them. They are vanity and the work of errors. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. God worked through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what does he tell us to do at the end time? He says that we are to return our hearts to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
they worshipped the true God. And the rod of God's inheritance comes through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So if we go back and read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're on pretty safe ground. If we read about the founding fathers of America, we're on very dangerous ground and thin ice. Because George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and those men were pagan worshippers of Masonic gods. And they did not found this nation on God. They said so in their constitutions. But when they laid out Washington, D.C., they laid it out in Masonic fashion according to the occult. Our very capital in this country is occult and satanic in origin and organization. Saying that is enough to get some churches shut down. Just recently, last week, church shut down by the U.S. government because they had preached against the Iraq war. Shut the church down, the U.S. government. That's another reason we're not incorporated. We don't belong to the government. We belong to God. And we will not look to the government to preserve us. In fact, sooner or later, the government will try to destroy us. But we worship who? The government of men and vanity and idols? Or do we worship the true God who sends his rain and thunder around the earth and look to him to protect and preserve us? He is the one that is going to destroy the society and culture of the world, and he is the one that in that destruction can preserve his people. He's the only one that can. So do you want a Christmas tree, or do you want God? So what does he say? He says, I'm, go I'm going to destroy it. Verse 17, gather up your goods, your stuff, your wares, out of the land... O inhabitant of the fortress, for thus says the Lord, Behold, I will sling out the inhabitants of the land at this once, and will distress them that they may find it so. He's beginning to say, get away from it. Gather up your stuff and get away from it. I checked several translations on verse 17. And the upshot of all of them was, lift up your bundle and leave the land. Or, pack your bags, get ready to leave. More modern translations. Is that what we have been preaching from other scriptures or not? God says this destruction is coming. If you're an inhabitant in the land, get ready to leave. O inhabitant of the fortress can also be translated, you who are under siege. God's people are going to be under siege from within our own nation, and then our own nation is going to in turn be under siege from the heathen nations around us. So in any case, if we stay, we will be under siege. And the church will be doubly under siege. We'll be under siege spiritually, 
and then we'll be left behind to be under siege physically. So we get double trouble if we're unwilling to part from the society and its culture and the things that we enjoy within it. Here's a warning. God says, I'm going to sling the people out of the land. Do you want to be with them? Do you want to be part of them or not? Do you want to stay with them as long as you possibly can because you like certain things about it? You know, if a tornado is approaching, I like to get as far away from it as fast as I can. Not wait till the last moment and then try to duck. Marla and I were going across eastern Colorado three or four years ago, and we're, we stopped in Kit Carson for lunch, and there, the weather was pretty upset, and there were dark clouds and thunder and lightning around. We turned the radio on, and there were tornado warnings all across that part of the country, and just out of Colorado Springs, we'd gone through a little town uh, where a tornado had hit. Mobile homes were scattered like you saw in the news in Kentucky and Indiana last week. We'd just seen that 100 miles behind us, or 150. So we were listening to the weather reports and watching these black clouds here and there around as we drove across there. The air was fairly clear when we got to Kit Carson, so we stopped there in a little place for lunch. And uh, we talked with the waitress about the weather, and she said, oh yeah, there have been reports of a tornado about 150 miles from here, south of here. Shouldn't be any real problem. So we finished our lunch, walked outside, and looked across the street, and in the field, right across the street, there was a huge tornado just sitting there in the middle of the field. Couldn't have been more than 400 yards from us. So we thought, well, that's interesting. We don't see that very often. Let's stand here and, and, and have a look at it, and, and just before it hits the street, we'll take off. Sure we did. Believe that one, you'll believe anything. We were driving separate vehicles, and I think we got them open in record time, got in, and headed out of that town. And just as we were leaving town, the weather sirens came on. Well, I wanted out of there as soon as I saw it, just as quick as I could get in the car and get it running and get it in reverse. I was out of there. Hope you make it, too. No. We were talking on CBs and staying in pretty close Marla will tell you the rest of the story. We had a tornado behind us and a very, very dark cloud in front of us, and I went on into the cloud and she followed. But uh, that was a little scary, too. Are you concerned about the one you see or the one up here in the darkness you can't see? And I knew that one was there, so I headed in. We made it. But the truckers were on the CBs, and there was one in that one, too, somewhere. We just didn't find it. Now, I wanted away from it. I didn't want to wait a the last split second and say, well, it's going to hit us, now let's go. Now, just, just the sight of it was enough for this boy. I hope we're that way spiritually. 
God tells us he's going to sling the inhabitants out like a horrible storm. He mentions thunder and lightning back here in this context. We've already been there. How long do you want to stay and squeeze out at the last possible second? Why do we want to cling to this world and its things anyway? Why is it? Because they're idols. That's why. We want to put them ahead of what God is telling us. You see, that's the problem. That's why he has to warn us to get away from it. It is coming. I'll swing them out and distress them. Verse 19, Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, Truly, this is a grief, and I must bear it. It's coming. There's no way to get around it. We just have to deal with it. We have to bear it. My tabernacle is spoiled. All my cords are broken. Those things that seem to anchor me and keep my life stable, that held me in place, are broken. My children are gone forth of me, and they are not. Is that the way it is in the church today? We were anchored in worldwide. Isn't our tabernacle spoiled? Hasn't it been blown apart? And haven't, for the most part, our children departed from us and they're out in the world doing their thing? Or, if not already out there, leaning there? Isn't this true today, spiritually, and isn't it about to be true physically of the nation? There is none to stretch forth my tent anymore and to set up my curtains. Family, friends, children, deserted. I've got to set up my own tent. Isn't that kind of the way it is in the church today? You've got to set up your own tent. That which we trusted, that which held the tent down, kept it stable in the wind, is gone. Blown away. And now we have to set up our own tent. So there are little spiritual tents or churches springing up everywhere. I thought I'd found a pretty good tent, but I found that it didn't keep the rain out. But there were certain things that were wrong, mainly the calendar. I didn't want to go out and have to pitch my own tent. wound up having to. Prayed and fasted about it, thought about it, read the scriptures for a long time. Well, I'll just go pitch my own tent. A few people crawled under it with me. That's where we are these days. Is this talking about just the world? No, verse 21, For the pastors are become brutish and have not sought the eternal. Like dumb brutes. No, we talk about cows as being dumb animals. They don't know what to do or how to do it. They have to be herded. They have to be fed. They have to be cared for. Therefore, they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Prophecy from God. Lack of Christianity, and that is what has happened. Is our focus on prophecy? Basically only as it has to do with Christian living. That's what this is all about. Behold, the noise of the brute is come. The real beast, 
We hear the noise. Do we see the beast yet? Do we see the warplanes? Do we see the bombs falling? No. But we hear the noise. We hear it coming. It's on the news. It's on the Internet. America's in trouble. And there are billions of people who want to destroy it. We hear that noise. When you hear the noise, it isn't far off. The noise of the brood has come in a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate and a den of dragons. O Lord, Jeremiah starts praying when he considers these things. God shows him what to write. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. Jeremiah says, I know I can't trust myself to make right decisions. He knew he would tend to deceive himself. He got scared because he knew that with all the trouble coming, he didn't know what to do. So he looked to God. Now that's what we have to do. We have to pray to God and look to God for the answers. Because that's the only place we're going to find any answers. So he humbles himself. That's the attitude God is looking for now is humility, not vanity, not ego, not intellectual pride and knowledge or whatever. Oh Lord, correct me, but with kindness, careful judgment. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. This is a verse that I think a lot of us use quite a bit. We don't like to ask God for correction and guidance because we, A, don't like to change, and B, are afraid it will hurt. So when we do finally get around to asking God to straighten us out, we say, please do it with kindness and mercy, O Lord. Because deep down, we know we don't deserve that. But we hope for it. Jeremiah had the attitude that we need to have. Pour out your fury upon the heathen that they that know you not, and upon the families that call not on your name. For they have eaten up Jacob, and devoured him, and consumed him, and have made his habitation desolate. Spiritual Jacob is there now. Physical Jacob is about to be there. And those of us who do not seek God's correction and guidance, who choose our own paths instead of his, will go there with them. Chapter 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Eternal, saying, Okay, what did Jeremiah do? He prayed for God's insights to direct his steps, to lead him, to guide him, to show him where to walk. I mean, that's, isn't that what you need God for? To show you where to walk. If you go out on a really dark night, you like to have a flashlight to show you where to walk so you don't break your ankle or your knee or your head. That's what he is asking for. It's dark, it's confusing, it's frustrating spiritually. Show me where to walk. Guide my steps. Lead me. Help me. That was his prayer. And he said, don't dump all your anger on me. Dump it on those guys. Isn't that our thought? 
Don't dump it on us. Dump it somewhere else. Save me from it. He saw all this trouble coming. He said, save me from it. Okay. We're going to find out then how to be saved from it. He prayed that prayer, and then God responded. Chapter 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the eternal saved. Hear you the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say you to them, all right, God says you prayed for guidance, for deliverance, for help, here's what to say. Thus says the eternal God of Israel, cursed be the man that obeys not the words of this covenant. goes back to covenant immediately. An agreement we made with God. What was our covenant with God? Our covenant with God is that we would bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. That we would walk as he walked and do as he did. That's the covenant we made with him. This is an end-time prophecy. So, the covenant of old, the old covenant, would pertain to physical Israel... And they are going to be punished under the terms of the Old Covenant since they have not been offered the New. We have been offered and have accepted the New. We committed ourselves to it when we were baptized, but we haven't always kept the terms of that covenant. There are many of our thoughts that are not godly and Christ-like. There are many of our actions that are not godly and Christ-like. So we're not living up to that covenant we made. So he says, obey this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, obey my voice and do them according to all which I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God. This is an end-time prophecy to the peoples of physical Israel, and he lays on them the covenant when they came out of Egypt. That is what he is expecting the peoples of this nation to be following today. And we're not. American society does not look anything like the covenant God made with physical Israel coming out of Egypt. Nothing like it. Why do we cling to it? It was not long ago that society and fashion dictated that our girls and women wear their skirts right up to their hind end, minis and micro minis. And then after we'd looked at that long enough, they decreed that they should have their tummies showing. Now they've changed it, and now you're split and you're behind is the thing that fashion dictates you're supposed to show. Well, we're going to crack up somewhere along the line. How far will we go with the gods of fashion?
Is that the way God wants us to dress? See, they, they cut the jeans in front real low. Now they're going to raise the front and cut it the back real low. Does that sound like the covenant that Israel made with God? He says, you want to show it? I'll show it for you. I will strip you naked, and you will be raped and ravished in other prophecies. Our focus is Christian living so that that does not happen to us and our children. Obey my voice and do according to that covenant. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God. We claim to be a Christian nation, or at least a certain percentage of us still do, but we aren't Christian. It's in name only. That I may perform the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then answered I and said, So be it, O Lord. Jeremiah said, I live by that covenant. That's the way I want it to be. That's the way we say we want it to be. Are we going to do it? Then the Eternal said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear you the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly protested to your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even to this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. Remember the blessing and cursings chapters? You'll obey, you'll have blessing. You disobey, you will have cursing. And our cursing is coming. It's already hit the church, and it's about to hit the nation. And maybe it already is in some ways whether it's terrorist attacks, hurricanes, tornadoes, or whatever. Disease, it's coming. It's here. It just will intensify more and more. It'll get worse and worse. Will we listen? I remember Herbert Armstrong reading these chapters when I was but a child. He was reading them over the radio, across this country, ship stations out the English Channel, across Europe, came to be that the World Tomorrow broadcast went around the world. And back in those early days, before Ted got sidetracked on whales and platypuses, he was preaching these. Did the nation listen? Did they hear the covenant? Did they repent? No. Only a few tens of thousands listened. But there were millions and millions who had opportunity to hear and did hear. There was a time when you could thumb across the dial and get the world tomorrow any time of day or night. And most people, it seemed then, had heard of it or had tuned into it at some point. Very, a small percentage today would say that they'd heard it. That generation has gone old. 
Did it do any good? No. But God won. God, through Herbert Armstrong, had Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah read to them. They didn't listen. This is coming. They've been warned. Now the warning is more to the church. We'll see what God says. Yet they obeyed not, verse 8, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the fantasies of his own evil heart. Therefore I'll bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did not. And the Eternal said to me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A conspiracy. Amazing. There is no conspiracy, is there? Give us a break. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. And they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. And even those of Israel who woke up and turned away are now going back to Christmas and Easter and Sunday worship and all those things that we came out of. Therefore, thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry to me, I will not hear them. They will pray. They will cry. They will beg. But God will not hear. When this all comes down, 90% of the church are going into that same tribulation with this world. And they will pray and beg and cry out to God, and he will not listen. Then shall the cities of Judah, inhabitants of Israel, go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense, that they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. God doesn't hear me. Forget God. Maybe there's another answer. That won't work either. For according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, have you set up altars to that shameful thing, even altars to burn incense to Baal. Do we have little altars burning incense all around this country on every corner and on every street? No. But figuratively speaking, anything that we do that is contrary to God is an altar to Baal. And the stink of it is of the incense of Baal to God. Everything in this society basically is repugnant to God. If we are like God, everything in the society is repugnant to us. What does God say then? Therefore, pray not you for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them. He just tells us flat out, don't even pray for this people. For I will not hear them in the time that they cry to me for their trouble. God will turn a deaf ear. He has turned a deaf ear spiritually to the church, which has not lived up to the commitment of the new covenant that we made. We just haven't lived up to it. 
and he has scattered us and destroyed us. And he's not hearing much, is he? If we show by our fruits that we are willing to obey him, he is going to begin to listen to a righteous remnant. A humble, meek, teachable people he will listen to. If we are not teachable, if we are arrogant, if we are prideful, if we are vain, he simply will not listen. If we are humble and meek and teachable, he will listen. He still turned his face from us. He hasn't turned it back, and his ear is still turned from us to some degree. We get, I think, because that we are on, are getting on the right track, we get some intervention. God keeps us alive and working. He hears us to that extent. But he is not wholesale solving our problems and providing us everything that we could possibly want, is he? No, he's not. We're still going through trials, troubles, and tribulations and grief and difficulty. The things that he tells us to do at this time in separating from the culture in which he called for about gathering up our things and getting out of the land, getting away from it, we even find difficulty getting that done. It seems like we get roadblocks in the way. He's left us on our own to do what he says to do. If we, in spite of all difficulties, do what we've been told to do, at some point, he will turn and bless. But like we were talking earlier, or Jeremiah was talking earlier, what am I going to do with this people, God said? You've tied my hands. I have no choice but to melt you. And we're being melted. Verse 15. What has my beloved to do in my house, seeing she has worked lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from you? Our holiness went away. Our carnality, our humanity showed through. When you do evil, then you rejoice. The Eternal called your name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. He is the vine, we were the branches, but we were producing wild fruit. And God has stripped the branches off, just like Christ said he would do. John 15. For the Lord of hosts that planted you has pronounced evil against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense to Baal. Our time, our energy, our effort, our lives to the things of this world that don't count for anything with God. The Eternal has given me knowledge of it, and I know it, 
Then you showed me their doings. God has showed us, brethren, that this culture, this society, this world is under the hand of Satan the devil. He is the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this world. And everything in it reflects Satan on some level. And we only have opportunity to reflect God. Do we still reflect the light of Satan's world or the darkness of it really back to the world? Or are we the light of the world shining the beacon of God's holiness? So the holy flesh had departed from us. We were lukewarm. We weren't much of an example to the world. His remnant he's going to set on a hill that cannot be hid. Are you brave enough? Are you bold enough? Are you ready enough to be different from this world and let God use you as a beacon of light to show the rest of the world how to live and how to receive the blessings of God? That's the remnant he's looking for. Those are the people he will turn his ear and his face to. I called you a green olive tree, but I broke you. But God has given us knowledge, brethren. He's let us know what we need to be doing. So God gave me knowledge of it. He showed me their doings. He showed me how they were wrong. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. And I knew not that they, that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be, be, may be no more remembered. Jeremiah had been somewhat naive. He did not fully recognize or realize that simply speaking the words of God would cause men to conspire to kill him. But it happened. If we speak the words of God and we live according to the covenant that we made with God of the New Testament, the New Covenant, the New Agreements, Men will conspire to kill us, thinking they do God a service. Are you ready for that? Hey, too late. You've already committed to it. You gave up your life when you were baptized. You put your hand to the plow. You can't turn back. It won't do any good to get afraid now. We've got to go through with this thing. And they are going to come and try to kill us all. It is going to happen, just as it did with Jeremiah. If we look at all like God, they will try to destroy us. And we will have those among us who try to destroy us. That's predicted too. We're about to read about it here. Doesn't it say in the book of Daniel that those who forsake the covenant will have intelligence with the beast? That means they will have collusion with or an agreement with the beast to destroy the rest of God's people. Do you think the Protestant, evangelical, whatever they call themselves that used to be the worldwide church of God today, will have collusion with the beast or not? 
They're part and parcel with the beast. Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. But, O Lord of hosts, that judges righteously, that tries the reins in the heart, let me see your vengeance on this, for unto you have I revealed my cause. I prayed to you, I put my life in your hands. Therefore, thus says the Lord of the men of Anatoth, that seek your life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Eternal, that you die not by our hand. Shut up, we don't want to hear it, or you will die by our hand. Interesting, we name this place Anatoth, which means answer, as in answered prayer. I believe God answered our prayer and gave us this place. Do I think for a moment that at some point there will not be men who want me to shut up and will destroy me if they can? It'll happen. I guarantee you that. Whether it's merely spiritual murder or physical. It will start with spiritual it will end up physical. You who give sermonettes, you who are elders, be in the same boat. Does that mean all the men of Anatoth? No, just the ones who will not listen. Anatoth is well spoken of later on, and God did tell Jeremiah to buy a field in Anatoth, because... There would again be blessing in the land and houses built there. So it isn't bad for everybody, and it isn't bad to be named this, I guess, but I didn't particularly examine this passage about it ahead of time. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remembrance of them, or no remnant of them, for I will bring evil upon the men of Anatoth, even the year of their visitation. Now, indeed, if this is the beginning of the Jerusalem without walls, and villages will be springing up where a remnant of faithful come, and there are much men and cattle there, as per Zechariah 2, I think the explanation I made in Daniel a couple, three years ago, whenever it was, is very valid that it will be the villages of Jerusalem that the beast gathers against and the flight will occur from this or that Jerusalem, those villages. And there is where you have to pray that you be accounted worthy to escape. It is that remnant that comes together to form the latter temple that will have some rebels, that will have some who turn against, who will not be worthy to escape. Being here guarantees nothing if this is the place. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth and being accounted worthy will be what is important. Being in the right place, and even at the right time, will avail us nothing 
if God does not account as worthy to escape. It will come down to righteousness, holiness, humility, meekness, and the keeping of the covenant with God that we covenanted to do. That's what it will come down to. So even if this is the place, there are no guarantees apart from keeping God's covenant in the way that he wants it kept. This makes it rather personal, I think, because there will be enemies and rebels right here. But God will deal with it. He says in Ezekiel, he will purge the rebels from among us. So anyone who is unwilling to listen, unwilling to be taught, unwilling to hear these hard things and rebel against it, God will deal with. We can rest assured of that because that's what he promises to do. I'm thankful for that. Good place to stop today.